this is Mike from Political Theory and um, other stuff. This episode covers an article about COVID-19, but more importantly, it covers the systemic issues in our current system that COVID-19 has revealed. This was the second time that I had done any editing work, therefore this episode does have some rough edits, some not ideal edits. I tried my best. The only way to fix some of them was to either add in stuff which would sound awkward or re-record the episode but we didn't want to go we try not to go that route when we don't have to because we like to have the initial aura or vibe be that which is in the episode it is about y'all seeing our progression and us interacting with this material uh, to a certain extent in real time so there are rough cuts please be patient other than that i hope that you enjoy the episode and the article as much as we did all right today we are talking about the article who dies by nicholas vargas they are oh the article came out march 20th of 2020 and it's by protein magazine i'm sure that's the precise pronunciation do not at me i know that i'm right and i also know that i'm right about the pronunciation of their name so it's, it's good we're, we're perfect that's that's We've the thing about this podcast is we are perfect. We do significant phonic research. Yep. Uh, if you have encountered other things, you should really look into those sources a little. Yeah. A little more close. Yeah. Reconsider. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. Paul, would you like to take us through the uh, summary of just the first the first section here? And then we can talk about it. To. As little as a month ago, it was easier to feel up if you just reading directly from the article. As little as a month ago, it was easier to feel a sense of revolution, uh, revolutionary optimism than it is now. Multiple wildcat strikes paved the way to union victories. Environmental justice found a place in the popular lexicon spurred by tens of thousands of mostly young people demanding change. And a presidential candidate who championed working class values was gaining momentum and winning delegates. Then, amidst an oil price war, the COVID-19 pandemic struck. Capital markets collapsed, supply chains started falling apart, things went completely ass backwards, our political, social, and economic spaces developed new schisms. Um, skipping a little bit uh, as far as just verbatim to the end of it, a heart of the article will cover things along the line. Uh, as more information and tests come along, increasing numbers of people would be diagnosed with the virus. The dead are a growing number waiting to be tallied. We languish impotently, knowing which demographics are dying, while mainstream media reports on each celebrity with enough money to conveniently acquire a testing kit. But the facts of who's doing the dying have always been known. So I would say that uh, this is a great thesis. The, one of the reasons why we picked out this article, 
besides it really resonating with us is the amount of links they have in the article. I really enjoy coming across work where people have multiple sources to support their argument. It's just exciting. It's exciting to yeah. see people put in the work. It so, shows, it yeah. gives me confidence um, that they have done the research themselves. Yep. I also enjoy it because uh, it gives me the ability to look into that research and, and possibly have different conclusions. Not that I yep. did with this particular article, but being that confident in what you're saying, uh, I do find that in a lot of media, people withhold sources possibly because they know that they have reached pretty, reached pretty far to get to where they are. Um, and so when you're this able to display where you're pulling your information from, I think it lends an air of competence to the author. So that, that's really all I have to say about the first section. I feel like it's, mm -hmm. it's pretty straightforward, but it also sets the tone from a uh, sources or works cited standpoint for yes. the, the rest of the article. You know, the first, sorry, the second sentence has one, two, three, three links in just that sentence. And uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an advocate of that sort of, that sort of work. Uh, not that I personally do that sort of work, but I'm an advocate of it. Yes. For, yes. for it. The first, uh, the article is broken into a few sections. Uh, we're going to cover each section, uh, dive a little bit into it, uh, and then move on to the next section. So the first section that Nicholas Vargas covers is titled The Dispossessed. We're, uh, I'm once again going to just be reading some verbatim things uh, and then just talking it a little bit about it. Um, so the opening part is in 1951, the Civil Rights Congress presented a petition to the United Nations uh, entitled, We Charge Genocide, the Crime of Government Against the Negro People, uh, which was aimed to lift the veil of exceptionalism to the world and reveal the brutality of America's racial capitalist system. Uh, to me, that, or actually I'll just continue. Um, <clears throat> Uh, so what they did, the CRC set out to prove that the object of this genocide, as of all genocide, is the perpetuation of economic and political power by the few through the destruction of political protest by the many, with the many, segregated legally or through sanctioned violence into filthy, disease-bearing housing and deprived by law of adequate medical care and education. Um, I think that that's a really important thing to discuss. Uh, we'll touch on that a little bit later. Um, the treatment of black and poor people called the dispossessed because they are denied resources, property, humanity, as disposable in America is predicated on a system designed to dehumanize and exploit. The dispossessed are forced into substandard accommodations from prisons to economically segregated transportation, housing, and hospitals. The CRC claimed, as I claim now, that because of these conditions, so swell the death rate and the death rate from disease in these intentionally disenfranchised populations. Um, the off-sighted concept of Mark Fisher's capitalist realism uh, best describes the limited imagination and solutions on offer from our public servants during this crisis. To them, there is no other world possible outside the capitalist order. Their minds desertified, they look soberly at the constant failures of an overwhelmed failing system and see no alternative to allowing millions of poor, disabled, immunocompromised, expendable people to die in order to keep the declining capitalist machine and its profits alive. 
I know where I'm already breaking what I said. Uh, I think that's a kind of a good break to the next part out that it, an argument that I often, Americans have this tendency to ignore or flat out deny the fact that there has been any sort of systematic uh, racial profiling or any sort of systematic attack on the poor of the United States. I think this was put in there just to kind of dismiss some of those claims. This article cites with easily accessible links um, to sources that back up what they are saying. So just uh, point out that yes, we do have dispossessed people in America, and yes, they were put there intentionally. Since we're taking a break in the deep dispossessed section, uh, I will, uh, and I feel like you're right, although this isn't where this section ends, this is a good place to, to come in and, and talk about our, um, our feelings about this section thus far. I love, and you know, I didn't know this, uh, 1951. They come to, to the UN with, we charge genocide, the crime yeah. of government against Negro people. Damn. Yeah. Damn. That is some real, real shit. Yeah. Like yeah. you think about, when I think about the civil rights movement, I'm thinking about the 60s, you know, and that we're talking a decade later. You know, oh, um, the, the or before, must, sorry, before. Yeah. Yeah. And the bravery it must have required to do that at the time, um, knowing that they had the evidence for the charge um, that they were bringing up to the most powerful government in the world at the time, unquestionably. The other thing, too, is the, the UN headquarters isn't in fucking Switzerland. Like it was in New York. These dudes yes. rolled up or these people rolled up to the the UN uh, office uh, headquarters thing gave their speech and were in America and left the building and went back to wherever they lived throughout America. That's just yeah. so baller, you know, and really mad, mad props to them. And just, just the language there is, is so awesome. And it's so striking that uh, not that I've read the, the article here, the We Charge Genocide, but it's obvious that some of the issues that are talked about it or, or that are, are mentioned in it are still relevant today. And, yeah. uh, and that it, is also crazy. And it's a big, you know, I think it, it's a big misconception. Many people, uh, what genocide, what forms genocide can take. Um, to a lot of people, uh, genocide only counts if you're literally lining people up in the streets and like shooting them in the head uh, or breaking into their houses and murdering them in their homes. Genocide can take all kinds of forms, you know, with once again to highlight that genocide is, you know, by their definition, their intent to destroy black people in whole or in part, uh, being that the object of genocide has of all genocide is the perpetuation of economic and political power by the few through the destruction of political protest by the many. When all of your rights have been taken away and you have no voice and you are the subject of whatever whim is occurring within the people of power, uh, that also is genocide. If you have no control over your own life, uh, if you are viewed as disposable, uh, it doesn't have to be you know, the, the Holocaust or the Armenian genocide. It, it can occur in, in many other ways. 
uh, and America's particular brand of genocide often falls within this category, i.e. Native Americans. Uh, a lot of what occurred there wasn't direct. I mean, that did occur, but it wasn't, the majority of it was the death came through decisions made by the American government that the native population had no power uh, to push back against those decisions uh, and disease. That's true. But we also on this podcast want to be responsible and want to be very clear that although genocide can take many forms, what is not genocide is people choosing to marry and reproduce with people that they have racial differences with that quote unquote water down or change the demographics of a country. Right. Yes. Oh, gosh, uh, yes. We are not. And I, I almost feel like I don't have to bring it up. I'm bringing it up more to make fun of the people that, that believe in it. Right. Um, but we, we do not. There is no case for white genocide. White genocide right. is not a thing. No. Stop and crying. Don't understand reality, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And, it, uh, and that's like something we could do a whole series on. Yeah. I just yes. wanted to make it yes. clear that yes. when we right. say that genocide is not um, as narrow as some people think it is. That does not mean that we are including, that we are embracing this, this absurd concept of white genocide. That's, right. we yes. are um, yes. disavowing that. Offsided concept of Mark Fisher's capitalist realism best describes the limited imagination and solutions on offer from our public servants during this crisis. To them, there is no other world possible outside of the capitalist order. Their minds desertify. They look soberly at constant failures uh, of an overwhelmed failing system and see no other alternative to uh, allowing millions of poor, disabled, immune compromised, expendable people to die in order to keep the declining capitalist machine and its profits alive. Not only is this uh, so unfortunate and so frustrating, but it is also so obviously true. I think of the uh, assistant governor of Texas or whatever the fuck he's called going on Tucker Carlson saying, you know, I am part of the at-risk demographic for COVID-19. No one has asked me if I would like to either protect my life or give up my life for so that my grandchildren can live the American dream. Yeah. Right. The, the, uh, these are the same people that are saying we need to open back up the economy and that the deaths are worth keeping the economy going. These are the same people that say we cannot have like a governor. I think it's, Scott Walker or, or, or someone. Uh, I, no, it's not Scott Walker because it's in a North, governor in Florida. In North Carolina right now, uh, Raleigh has had protests against our governor, Roy Cooper, uh, demanding that he end this hoax and reopen the government. You know, then they, it was a, a large scale. Uh, I saw footage from Ohio. Uh, I don't know if it was this morning, but that's when I saw it. Uh, they were there with their GOP congressional candidate, um, literally screaming at the state steps uh, about it being a hoax and that, uh, you know, that this yep. is a liberal uh, facade to destroy uh, their livelihoods, um, yep. which is 
the exact point of they can't even imagine, they can't even imagine how life could work if there's not constant capital and yep. not yep. constant money coming in or going out. Right. And that need far surpasses anybody's right to life. And, and, and even, you know, it says, um, well, uh, what I was trying to say is the governor of Florida talking about how we cannot have any permanent expansion of any social programs because of this pandemic. So yeah. it's not only, you know, uh, about just, they don't have the imagination to change the system. They don't even uh, like large scale. They don't even have the imagination to add, to slightly alter the system, right? So yep. that was just important to me, but um, well, we can continue. Yeah, um, so uh, the reason we broke is that the, the next part really um, goes from discussing, uh, you know, the realities of how America systematically treats their dispossessed populations uh, into how that um, can be reflected in a modern context uh, and the consequences of setting up uh, a system where we do not care about people, but we care about capital um, and what that means for healthcare in a pandemic situation. So um, I'm just gonna read through these paragraphs. It's two paragraphs, I'm gonna read through them real quickly, figure we will discuss. Uh, so a macabre article in The Atlantic, The Extraordinary Decisions Facing Italian Doctors, draws from a paper from the Italian, Italian College of Anesthesia, Analgesia, Resuscitation, and Intensive Care, uh, in seeking, uh, which we can further from this point on refer to as uh, CRT, <laughs> in seeking to justify the moral and ethical choices doctors will have to make in order to best treat sick patients within the US's underdeveloped capitalist healthcare system. Dysfunctional American healthcare institutions under free market limitations will be unable to treat everyone because of a total saturation of resources. Maintaining the criterion of first come, first served would amount to a decision to exclude late arriving patients from access to intensive care. Experts warn of the coming surge in patients when the overburdened system will force doctors to make impossible choices, which patients, uh, which patients would get ventilators in beds and which would die. Yet, as the CRT report has made clear, triage, the allocation criteria needed to guarantee that those patients with the highest chance of therapeutic success will retain access to intensive care is proving necessary even under Italy's universal healthcare system. In the United States, the situation will be far worse. If healthcare systems were directed towards people's welfare instead of profit and received adequate funding for pandemic preparation, death sentence triage would be far less necessary. Under a capitalist system, utility has always been tied to who can produce the most profit for the ruling class. The elderly are far less productive, exploitable subjects than the relatively young who heal quicker and can hold wage labor jobs. Vulnerable demographics, the houseless, poor, colonized, imprisoned, femme, queer, black, and disabled have all been excluded at one point or another from the criterion of utility by white supremacist patriarchal capitalism. That last sentence hits so hard. That last sentence, it's so hard. I'm just going to redo it. Not, not because yeah. Paul, no, Paul did a bad job, but because I, I just feeling those words coming out of my mouth, it just, it feels so good. The mouth feel yeah. is so intense. I just got to do it. Oh, please. Uh, okay. So uh, the, and it starts with uh, vulnerable demographics, the houseless, poor, colonized, imprisoned, femme, queer, black, and disabled have all been excluded at the point 
or another from the criterion of utility by white supremacy white supremacist patriarchal capitalism it's gross and then what hits hard to me is knowing that that is the reality uh but a huge huge portion of the media in this country a huge percentage of our politicians uh our movies all kinds of things go so far out of the way to make that seem like a fake situation to make it seem like that is just in the heads of liberal fucking, you know, SJW warriors and things of that nature. So not only are these people marginalized, the opinion and the facts of their marginalization are also marginalized. Or it's framed as though this is natural. Right. Like, like gravity. Yeah. Right. And that goes back to the whole Mark Fisher imagination thing. Yes. People, and we all struggle with it. It's not just Republicans or whatever, but all of us live in a cultural hegemony that tells us that capitalism is natural and it's the only way. But, you know, some people fall victim to it to a more extreme degree than, than others. Paul, we disagree on this a little bit, but what I love about that second paragraph is to me, what they are saying is that even in a place like Italy that has universal healthcare because of capitalism, because Italy, just like the majority of the world is a capitalist nation, they have to do their triage on who has the most utility rather than uh, who is most vulnerable. And on top of that, the preparations they could have done if capital wasn't such a concern, for instance, shutting down earlier or stockpiling more ventilators and stuff or having extra, extra beds, they can't do or there's less incentive to do because of capitalism. And so and- even when they have like universal healthcare, because of capitalism, there is a shortfall. Yes, and I, I do definitely agree with that. The other part I pull out could be totally off base is that uh, while capitalism cannot answer this in either country, adding even just a little bit of socialist help to the system does allow um, for at least more pragmatic choices. Um, Whereas in Italy, they will be making these triage decisions based off of things like therapeutic success. Um, America is already made these decisions based off of access to healthcare. Um, Right. Furthermore, 
Americans, there are Americans that aren't even going in to get checked mm-hmm. or aren't even calling their doctor because they don't have a fucking doctor because right. they don't have fucking healthcare. I would agree. The whole thing is that America is more fucked than Italy yeah. without universal healthcare, but that even Italy is fucked to a lesser extent because of capitalism. So right. that distinction does need to be made, absolutely, but but it should not be forgotten that they still have people dying oh, yeah. unnecessarily. Right. Yes, so they sure that's do. That's all I uh, wanted to say. Yeah, and my only thing is like, yes, I do appreciate that they are in a better spot to make more pragmatic decisions about who receives the healthcare, um, whereas, you know, in America, person who would be very susceptible or have a great chance at therapeutic success um, would still not have access to healthcare realistically if they fell into those pre-mentioned vulnerable demographics, the houseless, the poor, the colonized, the imprisoned, the femme, the queer, the black, the disabled. The next section, just the title of the whole thing is They Made Us Vulnerable. I'm going to just skip um, the first paragraph, but basically Uh, One sentence I'll read for it is, why must we allow the state to decide people's utility, whether they deserve to live? Uh, Why do we allow it to the authority to create the odds by saddling certain people with special adversity? Uh, I am going to read uh, just verbatim uh, the large majority of the rest of this because Nicholas uh, is on point. Yeah, they are a very pithy writer. Holy shit. If the intentions of the state mandate to disempower the many are overlooked and erased, then so too are the lived experience of communities whose houses were bombed and burned, whose civil rights and labor leaders were assassinated, who are shuffled in and out and back into the prison system in the age of carceral capitalism, whose water is poisoned, who were corralled into dilapidated housing by redlining, who were denied loans for housing on the basis of general wealth, generational wealth accumulation, and who were unethically experimented on by the racist state. All of those key points uh, have sources cited if you are interested, listeners. Gentrification and the skyrocketing cost of living have caused homelessness in New York City to soar to heights not seen since the Great Depression. 200,000 people in U.S. prisons are over the age of 55. Now packed in torture facilities, prisoners on Rikers Island are ironically forced to make hand sanitizer for slave wages, while most cannot get soap to wash their own hands, and prisons operate without clean water. Immigrants who fled their homelands torn by Western imperialism, who crossed the border illegally, are less likely to go to hospitals out of valid fear of deportation. When they are arrested by ICE, the American Gestapo, they will be held at a detention camp, confined to a cramped cell with at best insufficient and likely non-existent medical treatment, allowing disease to spread and kill more vulnerable people. Uh, As Francis Ryan writes in The Guardian, uh, and I want to just highlight this, I'm going to read it very slow, there's privilege in being able to cut yourself off from the world, like having enough disposable income to stockpile food and medicine, or having a job you can do at home, or indeed one that provides sick pay if you're not there, or if you're not there. People unable to do so, like the poor and disabled, are left to suffer. Governments tend to respond to crises with blanket solution that often marginalize disabled people even further. Professor June Andrews even went so far as to praise COVID-19 for helping hospitals with delayed discharges because these people would be taken out of the system and no longer be a burden to keep alive. Fucking tight. 
in the absence of proactive measures or adequate handouts, read human rights, the vulnerable are hung out to dry. The healthcare system of the United States has not been equipped to help people survive. Doing so is simply not profitable. In contrast, China was able to mobilize resources quickly and build brand new hospitals in a matter of days, as well as disinfect cities en masse. The World Health Organization states that China has stopped the virus in its tracks. Yet many Western countries, especially the US and UK, have essentially handed a death sentence to their vulnerable populations, the perpetually oppressed people that, Preventure, that Professor Andrews calls bed blockers. I think a lot of this is pretty self-explanatory. All I wanna say is, you know, another reason why we chose this article and why this article is awesome is because they are not forgetting about people that are often forgotten, like those that are incarcerated and, you know, undocumented immigrants. And the part where, uh, where they say, Immigrants who fled their homelands torn by Western imperialism, who crossed the border, quote unquote, illegally, are less likely to go to hospitals out of a valid fear of deportation. The whole homelands torn by Western imperialism is so important. These people, yeah. uh, and, and it's the same thing with the drug war. A lot of these people that are incarcerated, whether they be in ICE facilities or you know in the correctional system, are people that are, are there because of unjust policies that have made them either disenfranchised or, 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 or more marginalized. Uh, so oh. that's super important. And then the yeah. other thing I was, gonna, I was gonna touch on is once again, the whole thing about profit and capitalism and uh, obviously, you know, these quote unquote bed blockers, you know, it, it's right. clear that, that to some people, profit is more important. And finally, I just want to say with the whole China thing, I don't know a lot about anything, but I especially don't know a lot about fucking China. Uh, what I do know is that they have shortcomings, but the fact that they were able to build hospitals quickly and, you know, disinfect whole cities, you know, is, is, is something that should not be forgotten. It really shouldn't. And I, I'd also, one, just like to point out that those disgusting quotes about COVID-19 clearing out people, um, those come from a professor. Uh, so I do think that it's important to note that there are well-educated people who still cannot, who cannot acknowledge uh, that that capital does not trump uh, a human being's existence, uh, or or maybe they think that it's it's acceptable or it's natural for capital right. to trump right. certain people, yes. and you know that's that's the whole thing, the the idea that the academy is just filled with Marxists that are trying to brainwash everyone is just not reality. Yeah, it's just not, not reality. Um, and all I want to say about China is uh, clearly they have, not clearly, from my perspective, they have a lot of social policies and things I don't agree with. Uh, a lot of their social controls and things of that nature, the state surveillance, um, that is not per se uh, a society that I would like to live in. Um, what I will say is that uh, a lot of capitalist countries do also uh, struggle with those social issues as well. I think England is the most, uh, at one point in very modern history, was the most filmed 
country in the world as far as state surveillance and things of that nature goes. Um, so that doesn't only have to limit it to a communist thing. Uh, obviously, post 9-11, things that have been able to happen in America, the Homeland Security Act, uh, the NSA being proven to spy on literally everything we do. I think a lot of times people think that only communist governments would behave like that. And I just, A, want to point out that every government has a tendency uh, to do that if they have the wrong people in charge of things. Um, but all of that aside, China's focus on a communist structure did allow them to have the resources, the governmental resources available um, to put a halt to things and to provide medical facilities quickly, to provide the labor to, like it, like it literally said, disinfect entire cities. Um, so I just want to bring up that China is often a place that is openly mocked uh, in America for how terrible they are. Um, but because of a system that is constantly told, uh, that I'm constantly told could never, ever work, um, they were able to handle uh, a pandemic with a population of 1.3 billion people uh, that is kicking the Americans' ass is with a population of only 350 million people who are also much further, dis who have much fewer urban concentration centers. So I'll, I'll say one more thing, uh, not about, uh, not only about China, but just in general. So on this podcast, we will consistently reiterate the fact that when we say that a, a country is communist, we are saying that in the context of they say that they, their, they goal, their yeah. goal is yeah. to eventually get to communism, right? Mm -hmm. Obviously, a state that, that is a state, first of all, and second of all, is quote unquote, one, one of the largest emerging markets is not a communist right. anything. So, so we are calling them communists because they say that they are trying to move towards communism at some point or, or right. they hope to get to communism at some point. And they, have, they do have certain, like their market controls are more intense. Uh, right, just yeah, totally, totally. But I, totally, I just wanted to make that clear. That's a whole nother kettle of fraud ads, but it, it, is. Is, it is important because what happens is people are under the impression that what china is currently is communism and that's not correct what what they say they want to eventually achieve is communism and that's correct. totally yes. different and some of the building blocks that they put in place to achieve that have allowed them to respond to crises in a much more effective yes and humane solution yes yeah uh, yep. from what they have presented none right. of yes are experts on what's actually going on in china right. uh, but i personally uh, just am not of the belief system that everybody in the world is lying about what's happening there. Right. So yeah, um, yeah. that would be totally. kind of where I come from. Could I be wrong? Yeah, no shit. So uh, the next section is entitled um, Corona Capitalism. I am not going to read through uh, a whole ton of this, but a, just a quick summary. A, a lot of this focuses on a concept that was brought to my attention and is also quoted in this article uh, by a book called The Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein, which kind of highlights uh, a man named Milton Friedman. Um, and I'm going to read you a quote from this article from Milton Friedman uh, that I think summarizes a lot of what their thought processes are during crisis times such as this in a capitalist country. Only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are laying around. 
That, I believe, is our basic function, to develop alternatives to existing policies, to keep them alive and available until the politically impossible becomes politically inevitable. That sounds fairly benign. Uh, what they actually mean is that in times of crisis, i.e. thing really highlighted in the shock doctrine, and I'll read this, when the levees broke during Hurricane Katrina, the poorest neighborhoods were disproportionately devastated. Since then, nearly one-third of the black population has not returned. In the 10 years post-disaster, the New Orleans neighborhoods most affected are the most likely to be gentrified. Wealthy politicians, economists, and corporations immediately swarmed the area, calling it a clean slate and an opportunity to rebuild the city into something that it never was before. Their goal was to wipe out the old, poor, pre-hurricane city to make way for more profit, new markets, new capital, new residents. This isn't in the article, um, but one major thing they did was basically destroy the public school system and install a private charter system. You know, that's something that I'm very concerned about uh, happening with this current COVID. And I think this article does a great job of summing up some of the things that this current administration are doing should be very much looked at if you have any desire to keep any public programs afloat. So for instance, Trump has pushed to suspend the payroll tax, which in all likelihood would bankrupt Social Security, making possible the long-standing bipartisan dream of full privatization. Trump also hopes to bail out heavy polluting industries, airlines, cruise ships, oil corporations. The big money private healthcare and retail CEOs showed up on national television, rubbing elbows with Trump during a public address and claiming they have a common enemy in the coronavirus. Right, hold on, can you pause recording? Yeah. I think I ended with people, uh, retail and healthcare CEOs showing up during Trump's public addresses, but that uh, what they are, doing currently has the world economy, and this is from the article, as the world economy takes blow after blow, the Fed's first move was to offer up huge installments of quantitative easing to try and save the decrepit markets. First, it was a $1.5 trillion stimulus, then a $500 billion injection into the repo market, and there may be more to come. Meanwhile, gig workers and freelancers are uninsured and unlikely to get a handout anytime soon. No money so far has been allocated to families around the country who have been forced to quarantine and who are losing wages and gaining debt by the hour. The plans being brought to the table are pathetic crumbs in relative terms. Profit continues to flow to the ruling class at the expense of humanity. Um, so to me, just that whole section is, that whole section is a highlight of what capitalism seeks to do in its American form, which is to end all public programs and make sure that everything that is done in America turns a profit, whether that is healthcare, whether that is prison systems, whether that is education, housing. housing to these people's minds. If something can't make a profit, it's not worth being there. And when these systems are in place and people have control and are paying attention, generally even the most right wing reasonable people will not let you come in and shut down their schools, will not let you come in and privatize their, I don't know, I'm babbling now. But generally, once a public program is in place, people don't wanna let it go. These crisis actors inspired by Milton Friedman, 
come in and intentionally dismantle those public programs during times of crisis using fear mongering, using look at this hand over here while I'm doing this tactics. Um, and their end result is to literally privatize slash profitize every aspect of American life. A way you can see that on the individual level rather than the macro is one of my favorite quotes of all time or, or, or sayings is a philosophy degree. What are you going to do with that? Teach? You know, you can't make much money teaching, right? Like that, right? Like fucking philosophy, the humanities in general are often looked at as like, what are you going to be doing with that? When uh, in reality, that is, you know, as critical at this point, if not more critical, more critical. Than, than a business degree. And so, there are yeah. so few, I'm going to tend here, uh, just to back that up, there are so few large-scale positive changes in humanity that didn't start with that groundwork. If you want to close her down today, sir. So the last section is uh, disaster solidarity, a revolutionary uh, situation. Oh, and this, I want to say, and I could say this at the end, but this is another reason why this article slaps because it is really easy for leftists at at this time to be or just in general to be doomers to to just be so pessimistic to critique a situation and then end their shit and they uh nicholas vargas yes that is pronounced correctly don't at me is (laughs) able to take it a step further and say, no, here is, here's something to, to walk away with. And so it says, it is no time for defeatism in the face of uncertainty. It is time to seize this unique moment when the impossible becomes possible. The atomized many must come together as a collective and synthesize our immediate demands must put into practice working models of alternative futures and must imagine a world outside of this system of constant crisis. A revolutionary situation is a moment in history where system, s- systemic change is possible. We may be arriving at, at one. Even the bourgeois media thinks so. That's a link. In such times, the inherent contradictions of the system reveal themselves. The cracks grow wider as mass animosity towards the ruling class builds during a crisis like this pandemic. Talking heads hope that reform will ameliorate the escalating class tension. We would be best served to look beyond the inevitable band-aids and demand the most expansive measures. We only have ground to gain. We should all support the emergency program put together by the Party of Socialism and and Liberation, the PSL. The PSL has successfully articulated a broad spectrum of voices on the marginalized left who call for a moratorium on all evictions and rent increases, making COVID-19 tests free, housing and the homeless with the use of eminent domain, universal health care and sick leave, releasing prisoners and more. These, these are ideal first steps to take towards real change. Revolution is a continuum. It is built from the ground up. It is the opposite of spontaneous. It is planned, prepared for, and well-organized. In describing how to capitalize on revolutionary situation, what's this guy's name again? 
Uh, his, uh, it's Cornelius Castoriadis, uh, just a Greek-French socialist philosopher. Proclaimed, self-management will only be possible if people's attitudes to social organization alter radically. This, in turn, will only take place if social institutions become a meaningful part of their daily life, or of their real daily life. Uh, we have the chance to build direct democracy, mutual aid, solidarity, sustainability into the political space. New institutions take root in the husks of the old. This new order must then struggle for legitimacy against the institutions of capitalist society and have failed, uh, that have failed the masses. Take, for example, the People's Medical Care Center organized by the Black Panther Party or the occupation of Lincoln Hospital by the Young Lords Party. This crisis has revealed that the social contract with the state has been voided. It should be clear now that the state serves only as the guardian angel of the rich. To the rest of us, the state is Nietzsche's demon that tells us we will live this life at its worst innumerable times more. Yet thousands of dual power and mutual aid networks across the world uh, have responded to the lack of leadership by turning to the power of the people. Bricks are being laid to build a base of working class power that can be leveraged against the Leviathan-like state that actively works against our interests. This is the way we end the eternal recurrence of exploitation and oppression under capitalism. This is how we subvert the authority of structures of unequal power that decide who lives and who dies. This is how we kill the demon. Fucking beautiful. What I like about what they said here, uh, we just need to do that opposite. Uh, and it has been done in, historically in America. Yep. Like, that's how demon. But like we said before, we picked this this article because of the the sources, the in text citations, because of Nicholas's ability to sum things up in a like Paul said, pithy and and impactful and emotional way, and because they're because they have the ability or because they they made the choice to end the article with not utopianism or uh naive optimism but with clear examples of things moving in a positive direction and a roadmap or somewhat of a roadmap of how to move forward not just with you know incrementalism but the uh, radical revolutionary change and that's that's why we picked this article and uh we we encourage uh, listeners to check out uh nicholas vargas's work they're incredible and encourage them to uh, read the article for themselves. You know, it's all about educating yourself and educating those around you. And then the next step can begin. We cannot move forward if we're not able to expand our imagination and we can't expand right. our imagination without educating ourselves. Um, exactly. So thank you all very much and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks.